Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. principal perspective from which all Musar emerges, and that was true in the introductory session I did earlier this afternoon, but it remains true here, is that each of us is on a journey of the soul. That's what it is. That's what life is. And in a way, it's most evident that that's the case when we think about the beginning of life or the end of life. That a little being comes into the world, a little, you know, person, maybe six pounds, seven pounds of person, and not a whole lot of cognition going on, like doesn't know very much, but breathes, has light in their eyes, busy, you know, (laughs) just like a human being, but a really... Um, minimal version. But in that minimal version, it's definitely a human being, and the aspects that aren't there are not connected to the deepest aspects of the soul. What is there that is the human presence in a newborn is the neshama. And in some ways, the neshama is least clouded at that point. You look into the eyes of a little newborn, and they're just there. You know, they don't have any schemes or dreams or plans or history, they're just there. And, and then, of course, at the moment of death and in the process leading up to death, very often we're stripped back down to just being a neshama. Little by little aspects of this very complex and constructed life of ours, they fall away as we get closer to the end of our lives until it all falls away. And, you know, we, it's a big mystery in a certain sense, this coming into life and this going out of life, but it's worth bringing into consciousness because it really establishes and contextualizes the rest of life. When we seem to be very busy being who we are, doing what we do, and have all this complexity and it's all built up, and yet underlying it, is this thread that runs from the beginning to the end. There is just an aspect of ourselves which is in our beingness, just being a being. Behind the multi-layers of a construct which obscure what is maybe more clear at the moment of birth and at the time of death when it's really clear that it's about existence. You know, it's a pretty 
stripped away. And then here we, we lose sight. And then certain things happen in our lives various times that are, in a way, shocking reminders. You know, um, I, my wife had a book uh, on grieving because she's a palliative care physician and someone gave her a book on grieving. And Stephen Levine, who some of you may know, had written a thing in the introduction. He said about grief, he says, it's a shock, but not a surprise. That's a great line. It's a shock, but not a surprise. Like you, you, know, you can know it intellectually, what um, being bereaved is, or, but it still comes as a shock. And even if the person has been going through a, you know, say, protracted departure, when the moment comes, it's still a shock. It's a shock to the system. And those moments that happen in life are wake-up calls, and it's as if, again, like the beginning and the end, there's a moment of non-insulated contact with the life experience. When, zing, it's all right there. And it's very present, and all the distractions which is not to say they're not real and they're not important, but they, they, don't, they, they take us away from contact with the fundamental reality. Then we have these moments that bring them back, bring it back, remind us that we are just souls on a journey. Now I'm dwelling on this partly because it's the topic of the, <laughs> of the session, but it needs to be dwelt on in large measure because it's a perspective that most of us did not grow up with. In other words, soul, soul nature, soul journey, the different dimensions of the soul, the whole perspective, reincarnation. I mean, everything that the Jewish world has spent a lot of time investigating about the, from a Jewish point of view, the core nature. What is this? What are we going through? What are you experiencing? What is this? What is life? Somehow we didn't get it. Like we weren't given it. If you grew up as I did in a kind of assimilated North American Jewish world, I mean, I didn't get very much of that. I got a lot, you know, and various other kinds of things and a lot from being Jewish, but the sort of guidance for the journey of the soul it seems to be pretty fundamental. I mean, if you're going to be in a religious tradition, you'd think that would be a pretty basic thing to be providing. It's not like, no, I got, you know, Pesach, Purim. Um, and so that's why it has to be dwelt on, because we can carry on without this perspective disrupting the illusion of not being a soul on a journey until we're rudely awoken, awakened again. I go, oh yeah, I get it. And you know it intuitively. It's one of those things, it's not an intellectual learning, it is the learning of the heart. The heart knows it. And then we go to sleep, and then there's a wake up and we remember, and then we go to sleep again. And it's possible to be much more awake more of the time about being a soul. And it's hugely important because the Torah's injunction to us to be holy is speaking to the soul. Now, there's lots of behavioral aspects to it, but the Torah is so clear in guiding us to elevate ourselves in the direction of holiness as a primary guideline for living. 
but we get very caught up in so many other things that we, especially in the world we live in, where we're, where we're so in touch, you know, where there's so much information, there's so much connection, there's so much um, material of other kinds coming across that there's very little reinforcement. There's very little buildup of the soul perspective in our lives. And then you can lead your whole life for another purpose, but it takes a soul perspective to lead your life for the purpose of holiness. And that's what the Torah says we're here for. You know, that's, that's a core driving notion of being Jewish, is to be a person, a human being, on the path to holiness. That's, that's not Midrash, that's not, you know, some convoluted teaching. That's like directly Torah saying, you shall be holy. And it's so interesting because if you look at the list of the 613 mitzvot, and there are, of course, multiple lists of the 613 mitzvot, but among the main, one, main ones, you shall be holy is not a commandment. It's not a commandment. And there's various interpretations as to why it's not a commandment, although it sounds like a commandment. It's phrased like a commandment. But rabbis have talked about various interpretations, and the one that I like best is the one by the altar of Navardic, who says, no, it's not a commandment. He says, it's good advice. <laughs> it's good advice. That it's good advice to lead your life in the direction of spiritual elevation. That's good advice for living. But in order for that, if we were to take that advice and put it into practice, there's the two things that I'm emphasizing, which is to internalize this self-image of being a soul, which is so much deeper than being an identity, for example, or your name or your history, or your profession, or your, you know, any of the things that are built around this spiritual core of who you are. And the second point is that the direction that we can give to our lives, and that the Torah is advising us to, uh, to, to make central to our life, is this pursuit of holiness. And, you know, when you um, read some of the old Musser texts, they, they were written at a different um, speed of life. <laughs> um, you know, it's like there's 33, 78s, and, you know, 45s. Uh, we're, we're living at 45. I mean, I think. <laughs> and, like, they were, you know, writing books by hand and. Um, because sometimes when they try and drive home a point, they just stay with it. And I remember hearing uh, a Musser teacher describe that he would begin his sessions with an old world melody, melody, an old world melody sung for an old world length of time. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning and cover it all again, in the sense that there's nothing more to add. The question will be, and the work is always then to say, how do I become conscious and how do I internalize this perspective of being a soul on a human journey? Um, and so what I want to do 
just right now is just make this uh, a direct experience through contemplation. So I invite you just to sit comfortably and close your eyes. You have to close your eyes because what I want you to do as a starting point is to become aware that through your closed eyelids, you're still receiving a kind of uh, light. Your eyelids are thin enough membranes that light penetrates through your eyelids and registers on your retina. And so I want to ask you to take your inner capacity for awareness and let that screen of perception be filled with the perception of this light. It's kind of a passive experience. In other words, you're not doing anything. You're just taking a step back and letting that screen of perception, that, that inner awareness, be filled with this light which has no divisions in it, it has no boundaries, it has no depth. It's just a radiance. And your discipline in practice is to make yourself one with that experience of radiance without distraction. It's not to be discussed, described, it's a direct experience. Your breath comes and goes, and you're holding in the stillness in a very light way. And in a very light way, you're just letting awareness of that light fill your screen of inner vision. And then to take it one more step, Expand that field to encompass your entire physical body so that this field of light fills your entire inner cavity. It fills your skin, your muscles, your bones, your toes, your nose, your hair. As you gently breathe, as your breathing comes by itself, your awareness becomes one. You just are the awareness from toe to ears, knees to back. One light body. And refresh that perception. Refresh your awareness of that inner light being, and then shrink the field of your perception back to your eyelids. Be aware of your actual eyelids, that the light that you're seeing is coming through these two membranes on either side of your upper nose. It's a physical experience. And then after another couple of breaths, slowly open your eyes. Rabbi Elia Lopian, who was born in 1872 and died in 1970, 
which could mean that Musser is good for long life. <laughs> you could draw that conclusion. He lived to be 98. Um, he, in the first page of his book, Lev Eliyahu says, Musser is making the heart understand what the mind knows. Musser is making the heart understand what the mind knows. We can talk about the soul, and it's important to do that because, as he said, make the heart understand what the mind knows, it means that the first step is making the mind know. You have to know something. You have to have some concept, have some ideal. And the second step is not intellectual. The second step is how do you speak to your own heart? How do you internalize this concept? And it is so pervasive throughout Jewish thought and practice to, that this is, there are these two steps. Now, it's very distinctively Jewish because you'll find in other spiritualities, they say, like, get in touch with your heart and your heart will be your guide. And Judaism doesn't say that. It's actually kind of suspicious of the heart. But even beside that, your heart is probably where you already are. The question is, how do you change from where you already are? You have to lead the heart. And the, and the mind leads because it sets ideals and goals and practices and so on. But those, that's all devoted to bringing the heart along. Because it's only once it's internalized, it becomes really part of who you are, then it really becomes authentic transformation. You, you used to be like this, and now you are like this. Ontologically, you've transformed. And so in Jewish thought and practice, the mind leads and the heart follows. So that you end up with the two sorts of things we did. We talked about the soul, and then there's just direct communication, experiential communication. You read the Muslim literature from the 19th century, they got that what was transformative was experience. You can, intellect is important, but if it's just intellect, it stays where it is, and it doesn't touch the core of our beings. It doesn't change us. So in developing a soul perspective, then you have to practice in ways that speak to your heart. And that can be music, it can be meditation, it can be contemplation, it can be walking in nature, it can be looking into the eyes of other people, it can be many things. And Musser students are great experimenters. Another Musser teacher of the last generation who also lived into his 90s, so I'm beginning to develop a theme here, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Wolbe, he died in 2005. The, he was probably the last of the Musser teachers trained in the pre-war uh, uh, Lithuanian Musser yeshivas. But, you know, he, he bridged over to the present, and um, we're taking a group to Israel next month of Musser students, and we're going to the Rabbi Wolbe's Beis HaMusser, and one of the teachers who's going to teach us there is Rabbi Eliezer Wolbe, his son. So there is still continuity through the generations. But Rabbi Wolbe, towards the end of his life, he gathered all his students together, his main students, for a conference. And they sat around. And he asked each of his students to stand up and say what it was that they had learned from him. And, you know, the, this soul perspective is important to internalize. It's central to internalize it. But then the work of Musser actually is something else. It is the work of developing your midot. Because that soul, that neshama, 
is either exposed or not exposed according to the, the quality or the qualities, the characteristics of your anger, your patience, your truth, your trust, your worry, your joy, your sadness, all these inner qualities create the environment. But it's like you have to have that uh, internalized consciousness of the neshama. Then you go off and work on the nefesh soul. So his students stood up and said, one said, I learned chesed from you, Rebbe, or I learned compassion from you, Rebbe, or I learned, you know, something else. And they were all talking at the level of midot. After they'd gone around, Rabbi Wolve put his head in his hands and he says, I have no Talmidim. He says, I have no students. He's in his 90s. He spent his entire, year, his entire life teaching and he reaches the conclusion at the end that he has no students. And he said, what I wanted you to learn and what I wanted you to say that what you learned from me was hitlamdut, or as he would have said it, hislomdus. Lamed, the root lamed mem dalid, means to teach or to learn. It's actually to learn. Milamed is to cause to learn. And then melamed is a teacher. So that's the lamed mem dalid root is to learn. Hitlamed is the reflexive form, which means to teach yourself, to cause yourself to learn. That's what a Musar student is supposed to do. You're supposed to experiment and cause yourself to learn. You're supposed to look at your experience, try things out, and see what is teaching me what I need to learn. So when you apply the notion of Hitlam Dut to the soul perspective, the charge to you is to go into your life and see what gives you that. Where do you find a vitalization and a kind of awareness of being a soul on a journey. And where do, you, where do you lose track of that? What activities in your life take you away from that? What, what enlivens that soul nature in you? Learn from that. That's the thing about a Musser student. You have to learn from your experience. You have to be your own student. Rabbi Wolbe pushed that so far, he said, that a person on the day of their death should be learning how to die, which is a pretty profound. Imagine being like so curious and so attentive to your own experience that no matter what's going on, including your, your death itself, you're learning from your death experience how a person dies. And so, but, but we're trying to learn how to live. <laughs> and, that, and here we are. And so my charge is, in a sense, to pay attention to what enlivens. Let's back up one sec. If it's true that we're here in this world to become holy, to expose the light of holiness that is an innate gift, if that's true, and I'm drawing that from the Torah, so I'm on solid ground, then the soul perspective makes sense of all that and is the motivation around that. Because if you really think you're here to be tall or short or have hair or not hair or gray hair or, you know, or white teeth, or like if you're, all, if you're at that level, then it doesn't matter. The soul nature is something else. But, if you're, but holiness is inherently about the soul. And so if you, are, if you want to experiment with what the Torah is teaching us, then internalizing the soul perspective is so central and 
The starting point for doing that is experimenting with your own experience to see where you get connected to that reality within you and where you get disconnected and learn from that. And that is the path. That is how you develop that soul perspective and internalize it. And it becomes, over time, more and more central to who you are and how you're proceeding through life. Yeah? Would you say that's awareness? Not in and of itself. Awareness to me has no real qualities. So when I was doing the meditation, I called on your quality of awareness, and then I invited you to attach it to something. And that is the, that's the difference. So it's not just awareness itself, but it's awareness of, and I can't describe it in, in, in concrete terms because the soul itself is not concrete. The soul is a spiritual reality. So you become aware, but not in a perceptual way. You become more aware of being a soul. In the same way as I think, uh, that's why I began by talking about those experiences where it's more evident that what we're involved with is a soul experience. And it gets so buried. It gets so buried. And yet, it's going to emerge, you know, it's going to emerge through things that happen in life. It's going to ha emerge through the end of life. And then what's life about? So, might as well get on with it. Yeah. In this case, I'm, you're right. So, you know, in this case, I'm, I'm really talking about neshama. So there are different dimensions of the soul, and Hebrew is quite specific about them. And I'm talking about the deepest spiritual level, which is always in Hebrew called neshama, neshama. And the neshama is that really deep spiritual part of ourselves. And even in the daily liturgy, in the daily liturgy, it says that the neshama is pure. And that's, that's not um, saying your neshama should be pure, or if you do this, this, and this, your neshama will be pure. It says we are, at every moment, we are gifted with a pure inner spiritual being. And that's one dimension of who we are, and that's the dimension I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, the core spiritual essence. Yeah. Holiness comes in through the revealing of that light because it's there. It's inherently there in every human being, which is a beautiful perspective on yourself and everybody else. You know, it, it, it assumes, it makes it our baseline is that we are, that's what a human being is at the deepest level. But then there's all this schmutz, technical term, there's all this stuff around it that can obscure that. And that's where the inner qualities come in, the midot. And, you know, Maimonides, Rambam, is very clear. He says, every one of the midot that is tending towards one extreme or the other drops a curtain over this light of the neshama. And so when you're, very, you're a very impatient person, that's getting in the way of holiness, which is that that impatience is the barrier between the inner light and the outer world. But, you know, impatience plus envy plus, you know, miserliness plus, it's, it's, a, it's very variable. But, um, you know, the, the, 
the, the order of logic is that the uh, verse says, Kedoshim tihiyuki kedosha ni You shall be holy because I, your God, am holy. And then elsewhere it says, you're made in the image and likeness of God. But God is holy, so you all, and you're made in the image and likeness of God, not in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, because we're clearly not in the image of God in a physical way, which Rambam says is heresy. So in a spiritual way, we are in the image and likeness of God, and God is holy, so our, we have the image and likeness of holiness within us. And our work as Musser students goes on on both sides. If we, my, my Muslim teacher, Rabbi Pear, said to me at one point, he said, you know, if I had you to do over, <laughs> he said, I'd start with the soul. He said, I didn't realize how little you understood. And that helped sensitize me to want to do a session like this because I'm typical in that way. We as a generation are not that familiar with the soul. And I'm not talking about familiar in the intellectual sense, I'm talking about experientially or percept our, the, the, the glasses through which we see the world in the Jewish sense are meant to be soul glasses. But then there's the other side of it, which is the work of actually working on your midot, because that's the practical focus. And you find over time that the holiness emerges as if by itself, you know? and you don't see it, and you can't see it, but other people can see it, and you're bringing a gift into the world. You've been given the gift of a neshama, and this is how you bring it into the world, and that's part of what we're charged to do. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.